0: You know, I've been down here for so long that I almost completely forgot what personal hygiene really means. Not that I have a lot of options, considering I get to bathe in fire and brimstone all the time. But for the rest of you, there's Bruges. Bruges is an electric toothbrush that will change the way you think about brushing your teeth. With powerful sonic technology and ultra gentle bristles, the Bruges redefines what it means to have super clean teeth. It's like that feeling you have when you just left the dentist. A fresh whole mouth clean every single day. Right now our listeners get 15% off their total purchase with code POD15. Follow the link on our social media feeds and enter the code POD15 to get your exclusive discount and upgrade to your oral care routine. And if you're wondering why it's called brush, that's because it's got that U with the two dots on top of it. Just, just so we're clear there.
1: And now, hold on to your fireproof shoes.
0: This is Hell. Okay. One more TV movie to cover in our contract. Let's do this. No, the other one. Later than that. Come on, much later than that. This century, please. There we go. As the 21st century dawned, the need for TV movies on broadcast television started to thin out a little, thanks in no small part to the rise of more TV movies appearing on cable and the broadcast network suddenly using their available time slot real estate to put on actual programming in its place. But that didn't mean the network stopped putting made-for-TV movies on altogether. If anything, the process became so rare in recent years that the rare occasions that they would air would become event programming. Not unlike their predecessor, the miniseries. And yes, ABC was still very much in business of making these movies because, hell forbid, they couldn't make an extra buck by selling them to the Lifetime Network. In the 21st century, you still had your fair share of Diseases of the Week, Murderous Husbands of the Week, Missing Children of the Week, and on rare occasions, something lighthearted in comparison. But among all the subjects that make for your standard TV movie, one genre was actually starting to pick up steam both on TV and in movie theaters around this time, that of the biopic. Charles saw the world in ways no one could imagine. These kinds of movies have actually been around for some time. A movie about a person's life that tries just about everything in the world to get as many details right about that person as they possibly can within two hours. But you know that because of said time constraints, they're inevitably going to leave out a detail or two anyway. Or as some would put it, creative licensing. Still though, the point of any movie whether the subject matter is real or not, should be to suspend one's disbelief for a few hours. But it's especially hard to do when the figure being showcased is part of a show that somebody has watched for practically their entire life.
2: Hi, I'm Gilda Radner. And, uh, (laughs) okay, now.
0: Uh Nope. Uh Uh-uh. Wrong. Can't do this one myself. Do the thing! If there's anything in the afterlife I can't stand, it's when a TV show or a TV movie screws up the details of something I loved when I was alive. This TV movie is chock full of so many mistakes, I'm going to need a couple fact checkers down here to help me sift through them. I still have one pocket health dragger left for the year,
3: and I'm aiming it towards 35.7596 degrees north and 79.0193 degrees west. It's time to kick up our Tar Heels, in hell
0: <laughs> <laughs> Note to self, wear padding the next time you use the damn tractor beam. I think I'm starting to run out of cartilage on my ribs. <laughs>
1: Tim. What's up, Andy? Do you think that we should cover more shows than just SNL? I mean, don't we already do that on Patreon? At patreon.com slash thatweekinSNL? I think we do. But I mean, like, in a full-time basis. Like, eh, one week we do, like, Mad TV, and another week we do SCTV. Maybe we can do a super obscure one every month or something. But then we couldn't
4: call the show That Week in SNL anymore.
1: Uh, true, but... What the? Andy, did you forget to plunge the toilet again? Don't look at me, I just used the Drano the other day!
4: Drano? You fool, you never put Drano in a toilet, ever!
1: You okay, Tim? I've had worse. You? My head hurts so much I think I've been cleared to play football. It's a very odd thing for you to say. Mm.
4: But judging by our surroundings, uh I think we've gone a little beyond household plumbing issues.
0: Ho oh, oh. ho. Well, I know roto-rooter, but welcome to the bottom of the drain. Uh Don't I know you? I get that a lot, but no. We've never met. Oh, yeah, I
4: remember. You're the guy that pretends not to like bestiality jokes, but for some reason comes to the defense of Billy Crystal as Sammy Davis Jr.'s blackface.
0: I assure you, I'm not that guy.
1: But we did do two episodes of that week in SNL together,
0: right? (sighs) Look, on your show, I'm out of character. But now you're on my show, so try to play along and let's skip the meta stuff. Okay? Okay. Um, uh, sure. Sure.
1: So, why are we here,
0: exactly? Base yourself. We gotta get you checked in first. According to the tale of the tape here on my dragger, you two are Tim Sakali and... Andrew Dick? Boy, you've really let yourself go since news radio. Uh,
1: Look, I've been hearing that shit since the real Andy Dick was a cast member in the short-lived revival of Get Smart in the 90s.
0: What was that? More work to do in the next year, thank you very much. Anyway, the two of you host a show called That Week in SNL, which I'm hoping is not a program about savings and loans. Only if you're reviewing old episodes of Wall Street Week. Hey, where's that lightning? Number one, leave the bad jokes to me. Number two, only the powers that be know when to strike lightning on bad TV. And number three, even drunk on a dare, I would never cover Wall Street Week or any other news program around here, unless they deserved it.
1: Okay, well that still doesn't answer the whole why
0: are we here thing? Because I'm about to take a look at a TV movie that may require some expert assistance, and hopefully I've beamed down the right assistance. According to my info, the two of you seem to be preeminent experts on the lumbering dinosaur of pop culture known as Saturday Night Live, are you not? I don't know about that. Preeminent? Um, but we do talk about it a lot. Uh, yeah, we sure do. Good enough. Just follow my lead and say what comes naturally. Okay, roll it! Wait, so we're just gonna start? We don't even know what the movie is! (sighs) There's a bit of a preamble before these things. Now shut up and wait your turn. To simply mention just how important Saturday Night Live has been since its debut several centuries ago would be a colossal waste of time that countless tell-all books, interviews, documentaries, board games, museum exhibits, and promotional boxes of Colon Blow would probably do a better job of doing than I ever could in less than a minute. The god Damn it! I'm gonna try. In 1975, after Johnny Carson announced that he didn't want reruns of his show airing on weekends anymore, NBC gave a young 20-something writer-producer named Lorne Michaels a chance to run the network's late-night Saturday program, however he seemed fit. In the show's first year, there were a number of growing pains and adaptations that needed to be made before the show we all know and either love, hate, or tolerate wound up getting its permanent identity. This included the use of short films by comedy scion Albert Brooks to ill-conceived adult Muppets from Jim Henson and Company. But with the program being a sketch show, it also needed a repertory company of actors to help move the comedy along in addition to that week's guest host. This platoon of performers would be known as the Not Ready for Primetime Players. And while one of them would turn out to be the show's first breakout star, we already did an episode about him and his massive failings, especially in Late Night. So let's skip him for now and talk about one of the other ones. That's your cue, guys.
1: Well, I mean, if Chevy Chase was SNL's first star of the show, then Gilda Radner was probably considered the show's first sweetheart in just about every sense of the word. Uh, Beaming personality, straight and positive outlook on things, And probably most importantly, she was funny and she was willing to take a chance on some of the roles she would eventually play on the show. Even if they would eventually get on some people's nerves sometimes. No matter what she played, Gilda still managed to win over the audience just about every time she appeared on camera during the first five years of the show. What's more... She was probably one of the few people on the show that was aware of her fame and it didn't really let it go to her head, unlike some of her fellow co-workers and Jimmy J's. Then in 1980,
4: Gilda and the rest of the show's cast headed for points unknown. Whether it be appearing on TV shows, movies, theater work, or the random commercial or two, Gilda managed to find her footing doing a couple of movies alongside a man who would wind up the love of her life. Gene Wilder. First in 1982, Hanky Panky, then 1984's The Woman in Red, and then 1986's Haunted Honeymoon. The two of them would remain inseparable until 1989, when Gilda would tragically pass away after a lengthy bout with ovarian cancer. Oh man, I think I know what we're gonna be looking at.
1: Wait a minute, don't you have a rule that states you won't cover anything related to a person's death?
0: Only if it's a murder or suicide, either on or off camera. It's okay to talk about this one, however, because the piece we're looking at is based on a previously published work of a figure who wasn't actively on TV at that time. And besides, most biopics these days are about deceased figures anyway. As is the case when we look at a TV movie, we only go over the content of the movie and nothing else. Uh, uh, fair enough. Seems like semantics to me. (laughs) Easy. (laughs) Anyway, before her passing in 89, Gilda wrote a memoir about her life almost literally up to her end, which was unbeknownst to her at the time. The name of the memoir was called It's Always Something, based on the catchphrase of her famous Roseanne Dana character. I happen to have a copy of the original memoir in my hand, and the book is not unlike the lady herself. Warm, funny, sometimes nervous, but always full of optimism. Not to be outdone. The audiobook version of her memoir wound up getting Gilda a posthumous Grammy Award for Best Spoken Word Album in 1990. But it's the book that I'm going to have to keep close by for the next few minutes because, in 2002, the ABC network thought that the time was right to put Gilda's words to life in a TV movie adaptation of it. Of course, the real Gilda was irreplaceable, and trying to find a performer out there who could come close to matching her is probably one of the biggest problems a biopic can face. If the right person is cast to play someone else, he or she instantly becomes that person, no questions asked. But if the wrong person is cast to play someone else, you could very much wind up as Ashton Kutcher playing Steve Jobs. Fortunately for the ABC network and Touchstone Television, they came across a choice who, while she wasn't 100% perfect, was still a pretty safe choice for the role.
2: I think it's very exciting. It's like that last bastion of something that we don't know the outcome, so we can't...
0: Veteran character it. actress, co-star of the Lost Boys, and partial owner of the Atlanta Hawks basketball team, Jamie Gertz, was cast in the role of gilda and... Wait a minute, what? What? Jamie Gertz owns the Atlanta Hawks? Well, technically her husband does. He's one of those venture capitalists. But because she's married to him, she also owns a piece of the team.
1: The Atlanta
0: Hawks? Hey, I'm just as surprised as you, but let's focus, gentlemen. I'm
1: sorry, that might be the most bizarre piece of trivia I've ever heard
0: about anything, and we cover SNL for a living. Type down. Jamie Gertz was cast to play Gilda Radner in the TV movie adaptation of her memoirs, and...
4: I mean, how do you go from starring in movies to doing a lame sitcom with the guy from The Full
1: Monty to (laughs) owning a basketball team? Can we move on, please? I mean, you know, but, like, then again, a famous person owning a sports team isn't that far-fetched. Dwayne Johnson owns the XFL now.
4: Oh, the XFL. He might as well own a Little League team next. Uh, guys? Uh, David Letterman owns an IndyCar team. Which is only, which is really only relevant once a year. Big
1: deal. Guys! Listen, J-Lo, Mark Anthony, Serena Williams, Gloria Estefan, and Fergie from the Black Peas each own a piece of the Miami Dolphins. And the last time they got into the Super Bowl was when? When? Shut
3: up!
4: Do you want to call hell your permanent home? Hey, you're the one that said Muffy Tepperman from Square Pegs owns a part of the fucking basketball team.
3: I'll spout out the obscure references around here, thank you very much. Now clam up and let's
0: get this started. Jamie Gertz was cast to play Gilda Radner. The movie was set to air on the ABC network as part of a night-long tribute to her work-slash-event program to help them catapult their way through May sweeps. But as is the case with many biopics, the only thing that's gonna get swept is a lot of details under the rug. April 29th, 2002. The War on Terror began to shift to Iraq for some reason. The original Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire was about to revitalize the superhero genre. And at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central, the future owner of a professional basketball team- ZIP IT! Steps up to the mic to record the words once spoken by a comedy icon. We
2: are such amazing creatures of hope. No matter what happens, we seem to push ourselves to make the best of what life hands us. Such an act of optimism to get up every day Get through it.
0: We then smash cut immediately to what looks like a chemo-induced fever dream disguised as an ancient fable about life.
2: A woman traveling across a desert encounters a tiger. Coming to the edge of the cliff, the woman falls and catches hold of a branch. Above her is the hungry tiger. Below her is another waiting. Only the branch sustains her. Two rats come along and start to gnaw away at the branch seems hopeless. The woman then sees a luscious strawberry near her. Despite all that surrounds her, the woman thinks of but one thing, the strawberry and how sweet it tasted. Do you think people will understand that?
1: Didn't I hear that joke on King of the Hill once? Can you believe this guy? He tells a joke at a funeral. Highly
4: inappropriate. (laughs) Yeah, but... It was funny. It's not supposed to be a joke, it's a metaphor for life. Mm. The past chases you, the future is down the cliff, and the branch represents the present. Even Hank Hill realizes it was sports metaphors. It was the sweetest sip of Gatorade Roger ever tasted.
3: Oh,
0: I get it. Hell, somebody knows ancient philosophy. Have a cookie. To be fair, the fable was included in the book, so I gotta give them at least some points for authenticity. But it's still kind of an odd visual to start things off. Moving on, Gertz, who I'm just gonna refer to as Fake Gilda for the rest of the movie, starts her story with her childhood in Detroit.
3: No! no not Detroit! No! No, please!
0: Hey, at least it was a habitable place to live back in the 1950s. Now it's just one of our branch offices. But I digress.
3: I'm not eating grapes for dessert. Why would you eat grapes? All that fabric, it would clog up your whole system. <laughs> grapes, Debbie. grapes. Oh. oh, never mind.
0: And right there was a representation of one of Gilda's most endearing SNL characters. That of Weekend Update commentator Emily Latella, whose minor hearing impairment turned out to be one of the show's first major running gags.
3: What's up? All- this
1: fuss I keep hearing about violins on television. Violence on television, not violins. Violence. <laughs> oh,
3: well, that's different. Yes. Never mind.
0: But we're going to get to more on her in a moment. In the meantime, fake Gilda continues reminiscing, including her relationship with her father. Colonel Sanders from Spaceballs.
2: Herman, will you talk to your daughter? She is being rude about her food.
1: Mm -mm -mm.
0: It's always something. Hey, 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 don't suck on that thumb. What's the matter, Colonel Sanders? Chicken? We then cut to a local swimming pool, where after a round of fat shaming, Gilda's nanny slash inspiration for Emily Latella tries to motivate her. But if you say, hey,
3: I'm fat before he does. It's funny. Being funny always wins people over. I'm wearing my underwear. The big ones you said you saw me in. I'm wearing them on my head. Right here, at the pool, in front of everybody. Yeah, that's right. I'm wearing my big, fat panties.
0: But all was not well in Radnorland. For every moment of happiness, fake Gilda had to face with a pendulum swinging the other way.
2: He had a brain tumor, but it was like the Emperor's new clothes. Nobody ever said, Cancer.
1: Egad, that, that is a lot to unpack in the first ten minutes.
0: Indeed it is, but as the old saying goes, comedy equals tragedy plus time. Then again, this stuff is already detailed in the real Gilda's book, so... Unfortunately, as is the case with many life stories, there really isn't much that we can do about it. And even more unfortunate, it just gets worse as we continue to see Colonel Sanders' condition deteriorate at ludicrous speed. Say
2: goodbye, Herman.
0: Where is she going?
2: Camp, Herman, camp. Like she does every
0: year.
3: Mom, we gotta go.
0: We then cut to something that's slightly more upbeat in comparison. Children smoking. The fuck? Again, this was the late 1950s and early 60s. Back then, cigarettes were probably still considered the after-dinner snack after a well-done steak and a milkshake made with butterfat.
3: What <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> are you doing? Trying to see how sophisticated I look actually smoking. Oh, yeah. Real sophisticated. <laughs>
0: you guys better hurry up if you're going to catch lunch.
3: We will. Oh, Jeff? Janie thinks you're cute.
0: But all the cute, flirtatious banter between campers and their counselors mean nothing when the real world rears its ugly head.
2: My father was dead before I left camp. It was a very hard thing for me to understand. I, I know I have to forgive myself for being ashamed of my father.
0: So while you wonder the how and the why of a child being ashamed of a dead relative just because they died, the movie realizes that we can't spend forever in the subject's childhood. So we fast-forward ourselves to the early 1970s. Okay, boys, the fight to save your soul starts here. We're at the part where fake Gilda is cutting her teeth at Toronto's Second City alongside a fake Bill Murray and an even faker John Belushi.
3: Here you go! Thank you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. oh Say, uh, you sure can't turn the world on with your smile.
2: Yeah, I know. I get that a lot.
3: <laughs> hey, uh, you feel like getting a drink?
2: No. <laughs>
3: well, this neighborhood's kind of dicey. Maybe I should walk with you a while.
2: Oh, no, I'm fine. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Give me your
3: purse.
0: What are your thoughts, if any, on Gilda's pre-famed days. And also, while we're at it, how do our wannabe ready-for-prime-time players compare to the originals? As if I need to ask.
1: Well, I mean, we I think we get a solid Bill Murray here.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm Bill Murray. <laughs> Since I can't see uh, any
1: of my family out there, why would you know me? Um, the guy that's doing Bill
4: Murray's the only one that really kind of does both, other than our, our Gilda. But, uh...
1: Out that Dan Aykroyd, though? Oh, my God, the Dan oh Aykroyd, God.
4: though. Um, don't look or sound or <laughs> act anything like him. Thankfully, he's not really a part of this feature.
1: And our, our Belushi, I, uh, he never gets there. Never gets there for I mean, me. He kind of looks the part-ish at times with camera angles. He gets the dickish part right. Yeah. But
4: without any of that charm
1: <laughs> that I you suppose. kind of
4: need. I to make that character work. As far as the depiction of their improv work,
0: wretched. Mm. To the movie's credit, even though this is being made with a TV movie's budget, what they lacked in lookalikes, they did make up for in sound alikes. Unfortunately for every person who does a passable Bill Murray impression, there's a guy who just slaps on a wig, calls himself Eugene Levy, and puts in as much effort as Chevy Chase playing Gerald Ford. I'm sorry, man. I'm crap with names. Eugene. Eugene Levy. Right. So, uh... What are we looking at? But regardless of who's ruining whose legacy with questionable impressions, all of this is a preamble to what would wind up being fake Gilda's big break. Television sucks, man. You
3: know what I do with my TV? What? I spit at it. Besides, it doesn't get any better than this. Except
2: the Lampoon. Oh. In New York. With me. I'm not going Which to Which you New York. should do. I'm not going to I New York. I think. I am not going should. to New York.
0: And so, in that oh-so cliched way of doing something after swearing you wouldn't, fake Gilda is convinced to come to New York, where she manages to land the job interview of a lifetime. You're one of the funniest people I've ever seen.
2: Oh, Lorne, there's a lot of other funny people.
0: Well, not who can play 16 bingo cards
4: at the same time.
2: <laughs> if
4: you can do that, a live show is nothing.
2: Oh, I'll think about it. So what are you going to call this, debacle, the Lauren Michaels show?
0: called Saturday Night Live. Okay, freeze. I don't know where to start with that last minute. The fact that the guy playing Lorne Michaels looks like Edward Norton in a fright wig, or the fact that they were legally unable to call the show Saturday Night Live in 1975, as I'm sure you two already know.
1: Oh, yeah, that uh, there there was Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell premiering basically the same time as NBC's Saturday Night's. Uh, that was where, uh, th- that's why, like, Bill Murray isn't in the original cast. He was He was part of, uh, Howard Cosell's show. That was an ABC thing, correct? Yes. Uh, also, I believe Brian Doyle Murray was there as well, and Christopher Guest. Um, basically, none of this show exists at this point, uh, which is a real shame. I'd love to know exactly what the hell this is. Uh, basically, a whole bunch of sports personalities trying to put on their own sketch comedy show?
4: Like a Dick Ebersol.
1: Uh,
0: ooh, hey! That, it, so it can work! <laughs> but folks, that's just the tip of the iceberg as far as the historical inaccuracies go. Act 2 sees more of them put on display.
2: I worked ten years straight. Godspell, Second City, Lampoon, and finally... Saturday Night Live.
0: Again, it wasn't called that back in 75, but I'm not gonna harp on that.
2: I am so excited, Debbie. It's kinda like Monty Python meets 60 Minutes with puppets.
0: An otherwise accurate description of TV news outlets today. (laughs) Which brings us to inaccuracy number two of the movie. SNL's, uh, excuse me, that should be NBCSN's first sketch, The Wolverine's, for reference sake, Here's how that sketch went on that first night in October of 1975. Repeat after me. I would like, I would like to feed your fingertips. To feed your fingertips to the Wolverines. To the Wolverines. (laughs) And here's what the movie did to it. Let us begin. Repeat after me. I would like. I would like. To feed your
3: fingertips. To feed your fingertips. To the Wolverines.
4: ...to the Wolverines.
0: Next. And for the most part, they at least got that part right. But then... this happens.
3: Live
0: from New York, it's Saturday night! Guys, what just
1: happened here? So, original Wolverines, that's a two-hander with John Belushi. And Michael O'Donohue. So right. when this segment of the movie started, I was like, what is happening? This is the worst Michael O'Donoghue I've ever- <laughs> this isn't even close to anything. What? Oh, it's Chevy Chase? You know, original sketch plays out, Michael has a heart attack, and- and John follows suit, and then you get that bizarre moment where Chevy, uh, as the stagehand comes out and goes, oh, oh, they're dead. Anyway, live from New York, it's Saturday night. And- you know, all the Pratt falls would be more known. Chevy did that stuff, mm-hmm. but not in the first episode. That was Michael O'Donoghue, the first one to fuck a fall to the floor. Uh, so this uh, just kind of fudges the details and says, eh, ah, it was Chevy Chase all along. But it wasn't, that was Michael O'Donohue! Do you think that was just a factor of, like, we've got a
4: tight budget and we afford to cast another actor. Yeah,
1: also, I mean, yeah, they didn't even go into Michael at all, so why... I, I can understand why you do it, but also, uh,
0: factually incorrect movie! I know that to the average ordinary TV viewer, that moment was seen as an homage of sorts to the real thing, but to those of us who've been watching SNL since we could crawl, this was about as sacrilege as you could get, and we're still only on the appetizers. Inaccuracy number three happens when they don't even bother to show the correct title sequence. Remember, this was supposed to be 1975. This particular title sequence didn't happen until 1978 and- Uh, dude. What? do you think this is starting to get just a little nitpicky? How so? This is a biopic. They gotta get certain details right, don't they? True, but that's the details on the person
4: being featured. Who gives a shit about the title sequence of a TV show?
0: Well, as an SNL fan, I do. Even if it isn't an integral part of the movie. Do I have to sick William Shatner on you? Huh? Play the clip! Get a life! William For crying out loud! Uh, it's it's just a TV show! fine, I see your point. If we took apart every single thing wrong, we'd be here all day. So let's just move on to something else that plagued the real Gilda growing up: anorexia.
3: You must have an amazing metabolism. <laughs> no, <laughs>
2: you eat like a longshoreman. How can you eat all that food? Simple. I throw it out. You throw up your dinner? Lunch, dinner, between meal snacks.
0: And while we're wondering how anybody can turn eating disorders into a lovable characteristic. Fake Gilda manages to find a way. And
2: now, a new feature on Saturday night. What Gilda ate. Gilda? Thanks, Jane. Okay, this morning I had toast and two eggs scrambled in a no-stick Teflon pan. (laughs) 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 Then I had a little piece of chicken and a leftover breaded sweet and sour shrimp, but I picked off all the breading.
0: Now, if I'm not mistaken, those were actual sketches, right?
1: Uh, well, sketches more like monologues. How does
4: that play in the time that it's being broadcast because people aren't really aware of her bulimia issues mm. or anorexia issues at this point.
1: I, I guess so there's some absurdity. Like, look at this, this small-framed woman. How does she eat so much? That's absurd. She must be doing a lot of cocaine. <laughs>
4: well, uh. Yeah, Oh I mean, I guess it was the 80s.
1: No, it wasn't. It was the <laughs> 70s. <laughs> Welcome back to Earth. They were they?
0: very ahead of their time. <laughs> Which then neatly segues us to one of SNL's first major characters, the aforementioned Emily Litella. Ignoring the fact that they're using the 1978 Weekend Update set in 1975, I think we all know how this one goes.
2: I'm here tonight to speak out against busting school children. Busting school children is a terrible, terrible thing.
0: The editorial
4: was on bussing school children. Bussing, not busting them. Bussing.
2: Oh, well, that's different. Never mind.
0: (laughs) Okay, so Gertz wasn't exactly pitch perfect. Truth be told, she kinda sounded like 1980s cast member Mary Gross, but there it is. So, instead of picking on Gertz's performance, let's talk a little about the Emily Latella character.
1: Oh man, do we have to?
3: That depends. Do you want your soul to be deep-fried, barbecued, or parboiled? Why
4: are the things that seem to be done the most and therefore the most fondly remembered from the original cast be some of the most grating things to revisit.
1: I, the only way I can explain it is, you know, this is still mostly pre-VCR, so like, if Emily Latilla was getting some groundswell, you tell your friends about it, you want to have- make sure that the episode that they watch has Emily Latilla. And so SNL made sure that almost every single episode for the first two seasons had Emily Lutilla. Oh goodness!
0: So, needless to say, the character does have its fair share of fans and foes. But it's clearly the spark that Gilda needed to get on camera some more. Followed immediately by more eating disorder-related vomiting, as well as the birth of Gilda's second and probably most recognizable character. Who
2: do I see in the Tiffany's bathroom? Miss Perfect Ten herself, Bo Derek. So I'm standing there when Miss Perfect Ten sneezes. Dental little snooze, but
0: a real bomb. Now, I listen to your show, and I know there's going to be a bit of a bone of contention here, but I'm just gonna say it. I think Roseanne, Roseanne Dana is probably one of the greatest characters SNL has ever had. Certainly not number one, but I definitely put her in a top five. But I know you feel slightly different about her, don't you? Uh,
1: I don't get it. That's my thing. I don't get this character. My only enjoyment of it is not even Gilda so much, it's Jane's reaction to her.
4: Yeah, I mean, those things probably lean more on Jane's reactions than Gilda's performance. How many characters can one person have that are just kind of, you know, unbound energy- and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, obnoxious catch lines.
0: Yeah. Be that as it may, the character is seen as a bit of a turning point for Gilda, but not so much that whenever she sees the audience applauding, a gaggle of Colonel Sanders's a.k.a. her father, is there giving the support. Array for metaphors, I guess. Also, I know this falls under nitpickery, but that character debuted in 1977, and... Yet here we are just as Chevy quit the show in 76. Oh my god, do I need to get William Shatner on you again? Up up up, up, up up up. I'm just trying to establish a scene here. Come
3: on!
0: You guys are all
3: paranoid! Chevy leaving isn't gonna hurt the show, it's gonna make it
0: better. Oh. Okay, I'm sorry, but whoever they got to play this version of John Belushi is making Michael Chiklis in the movie Wired look like Lawrence Olivier. He's too whiny, he's too thin, and when he does try to do a Belushi-style rant, he sounds more like Sam Kinison.
3: Television doesn't need guys like Chevy, he's OUTLAWS! And it occurred
0: to us that there wouldn't be world hunger if you people would live where the food is! But disregarding that, and the blatant disregard for timeline jumping, The show goes on.
3: Outlaws that are willing to grab John Q. Public by the throat and drag him into the seven circles of hell. Nine. There are nine circles in Dante's
0: inferno. It's hell, you Harvard freak. Who gives a damn? Hey, thanks for the free plug. It's not gonna help you in any way, but at least I know you're trying to suck up. Anyway, somebody who I assume is playing the part of the late great Ann Beats, one of the show's original writers, comes up with the idea for Gilda's next big character. So I'm listening to this
3: bootleg Elvis Costello, and I get this idea for
0: a nerd sketch. What's a nerd? That'd be a Harvard freak in high school. I'm not gonna play some nerd. And while we're wondering about the parallel universe where John Belushi would appear in the nerd sketches, our dinner theater Bill Murray volunteers to take on the role, with fake Gilda coming into the meeting late. One and one make two, and then suddenly. Oh.
2: Hey, Pat, should we offer him some mini
3: marshmallows?
0: <laughs> no, I, I think he'd like the really
3: big ones. Oh,
2: Pat!
0: So now we have two things to unpack here. That of the nerd sketches and also of the apparent relationship between Gilda and Bill Murray. Yeah, as far as
1: I know, a pretty torrid love affair that maybe lasted uh about a year or so. I think season 4 uh they were a couple for the large majority of it and by season 5 were no longer
4: her her bio kind of uh insinuates that uh, she she kind of shacked up with every funny man that she ever came across
1: wouldn't you
4: i mean gene wilder is pretty dreamy <laughs> uh as far as the nerd sketches go uh i was uh not shocked but completely disappointed uh to hear that uh, Belushi was too cool for school for that one.
1: Mmm, yeah. And, you know, I enjoy the nerd sketches. Uh, I like the nerd sketches. Very, very nice, lived-in characters, and uh, utilizes the blooming love of Gilda and Bill, uh, and weaponizes it for a sketch.
0: All the fun with the nerds, however, leads to one other central theme of the movie. The notion that, at least according to the real Gilda, any time she gets close to a man, things tend to fall apart. Can't say ass,
2: but it is an ass donkey creature, look it up.
0: Besides, we've Oh, wait, wait, whoa, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, right there. Um, before we actually continue with the plot, uh, this section of the film makes a couple of references to one of the bigger battles with network censors that SNL ever faced. When, during a nerd sketch, there was actually a big shitstorm over Gilda portraying the Virgin Mary, wasn't there?
1: NBC just had, uh, just all of these problems with, uh what they were doing and and simply just it wasn't even stuff they hadn't done before like they couldn't call a donkey an ass because it was just like this the religious context of it all really bothered NBC for some reason and by their fifth season it, it almost made no sense they had done like that's incest what they jokes called it in the bible yes and yeah we had had incest and all sorts of Insane yeah, topics you, Andy, covered in the show. The Bible, have you ever read it?
0: Full of all sorts of ugly shit.
1: But don't say ass, sir! This is a holy show!
0: <laughs> well, in the words of longtime SNL writer A. Whitney Brown, if that's blasphemy to you, then good, cause it's been a blast for me too. By this point in the story, however. Gilda grows weary of life in New York on a Saturday night. And like most rising stars, Gilda wants something more.
2: Saturday Night Live was a charmed time. We all thought we were immortal. I was funny, and I was in control of my life. At least for five years.
0: Act 3 starts with...
2: By the second year of Saturday Night Live, the happy dysfunctional family was just
0: dysfunctional. Wait a minute. The second year? Okay, I don't care if this is nitpicking, but it's wrong very wrong. In that past segment, we almost literally time jumped through all five years of the original cast. Emily Latella was 1975, Roseanne Dana was 77, The Nerds was 78, and that Nativity sketch was 79. Don't go telling me all of that stuff happened within ONE CALENDAR TV SEASON. Whoa, hothead. Take it down a little. I'm sorry, but this is one thing about biopics that pissed me off the most. You have the source material in hand as you're writing the story the source material. After all, the person who came up with said source material has gone out of her way to recall her own life. Hell, the book version of this movie is more self-contained than the actual movie wants it to be. I'm not saying it has to be 100% to the letter, but try to maintain the narrative in a way that doesn't require the attention span of a mosquito. Is
4: this you digressing?
0: Of course it is! So let's just move on to the part where Fate Gilda is enjoying the fruits of her labor. Okay, this part I actually kinda liked. It's a reference to famed SNL short filmmaker Tom Schiller and one of his best-known pieces, an homage to Federico Fellini's La Dolce Vita, with Gilda in the title role. And in spite of the inaccuracies featured here so far, the bits and pieces that they splice with Gilda's actual life outside of SNL is actually a pretty spot-on recreation of the short.
2: After five years, I wanted to be just the girl again.
1: Do Emily Latella.
3: Come on, Kilda.
1: Come on, do Emily. Well clearly, that last scene had to be a work of fiction. How high must one's sex drive
0: be to be that turned on to Emily Latella? A horrifying thought indeed. But not half as horrifying as wondering where one's next job will come from.
2: Broadway Lorne. I dreamed about it my whole life. Please?
0: Oh, come here. No. One no later, Gilda suddenly has a Broadway show. I'm sure it was a lot more complicated than that, but remember, this is only a 90-minute movie. And as the preparation is underway for the show's pre-production, the latest in a series of men in fake Gilda's life catches her eye. Gilda.
2: Who's the cute guy with the guitar? G.E. Smith. Is he single?
0: A moment in her life so important that the real Gilda mentions Mr. George Elliot Smith, a grand total of one paragraph in her book. I'm not joking. It's page 153 in the 20th anniversary edition if you doubt the claim. Meanwhile, this movie devotes a reasonable sized chunk of airtime to the relationship. And not to spoil anything that happens later in the book or the film, but they did divorce mutually by 1981. I don't want to speak ill of the deceased, but G.E. Smith wore a black armband for her on the episode of SNL that aired the day she died. And all you could give him was just one paragraph? Interpret that how you will. Uh,
1: I don't know, neither of them really seem to talk about it that much. So it's just kind of one of those, uh, known unknowns in a weird way. I mean, turns out
4: she didn't have, uh, those dad vibes that she was so desperately
0: looking for. Mm. That detail with the glare of a neon light aside, fake Gilda gets married to G.E., much to her friend's surprise.
2: I got married! Uh. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, here he is, G.E. Smith, my hubby. How you doing? Gil, when did you get married? Today. We went to the courthouse and just did it. This is our unofficial reception.
0: In spite of her friend's reservations about fake Gilda's impulsive decision-making, her Broadway debut is one of the high points of her personal and professional life. But in my favorite words of Victor Lewis Smith... The critics were less kind.
2: Oh, here's a good one. Gilda Radner has no talent. Zip. Zilch. Zero.
0: If I recall correctly, this was only supposed to have been a limited run on Broadway. Seven weeks in the summer of 79, according to the book, plus a feature film adaptation directed by Mike Nichols. It couldn't have been that bad, could it?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, mostly what I know about it is that's where she met G.E. and, uh... I believe that Paul Schaefer was brought over to work on that and that caused the uh, the ire of John Belushi who uh, was desperately trying to get him to work on Blues Brothers. And so, or that, that, that or the album? I can't remember. I don't know. I just started watching SNL yesterday. It seems very interesting, though. Your preeminence is oh. very impressive.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the animal the animal. Let's talk dirty to the animals, fuck you, Mr. Bunny, eat shit, Mr. Bear. If
0: Well, despite all of that, this concludes the SNL portion of our film. Pretty much from here on out, the rest of the movie will consist of fake Gilda's relationship with Gene Wilder and all the other stuff that happened afterward. Ooh, does that mean we can leave now?
4: Yeah, now that we've tapped the SNL well drive, uh, I don't think you need us anymore. We'll just uh, be on our way. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Bitch, please. This is just the end of the first half. You're gonna be done with this when the movie is done, and you're gonna like it.
1: Is this because of the whole Tom Green thing? Hey,
0: what did I say about going meta? I don't really think there's anything we can add to the second half. Well, you're gonna have to find something to talk about, because if you don't, I'm authorized to show the two of you this. Paul Reiser's 1995 episode of SNL, what many consider to be one of the worst episodes of all time. And I'm going to show it to you on an infinite loop
3: for all of eternity. Ah,
4: Jesus, I am not sitting through Paul Reiser again.
0: How long do we have to think it over? I'll give you about two minutes, which is roughly until... After the break. No, New Shimmer is a dessert topping.
3: It's a floor wax.
0: It's a dessert topping.
1: It's a floor wax, I'm telling you. It's a dessert topping, you cow! Hey, 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 calm down, you two. New Shimmer's a floor wax and a dessert topping. Here, I'll spray some on your mop and some on your butterscotch pudding. Mmm, tastes terrific. Just look at that shine. (laughs) But will it last? Hey, outlasts every other leading wax 2 to 1. It's durable and it's scuff-resistant. And it's delicious. (laughs) Sure is. Perks up anything from an ice cream sundae to a pumpkin pie.
3: Made from an exclusive non-yellowing formula.
1: I haven't even touched my pudding and I'm ready for more.
3: But what about black heel marks?
1: Dirt, grime, even black heel marks. Wipe clean with a damp cloth. Oh, sorry, honey. I'll clean that up.
2: Oh, no. Problem, sweetheart, not with new shimmer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> new shimmer for the
1: greatest shine you ever tasted. <laughs>
0: the hell is proud to partner up with dave's archives dave's archives is the premier spot on youtube where you can get your vintage tv fix including old commercials and original shows covering classic tv and other tv related pop culture here's just a small taste of what they have in store for you when you need a little lift but you just can't take a break chew Wrigley's spearmint gum
3: the cool refreshing feeling of Wrigley's spearmint gum Puts a little lift in everything you do. That good smooth chew and that crisp, clean taste, that Wrigley spearmint pickup is going for you. Wrigley spearmint gum really keeps your harm and spearmint gum keeps your humming along. Wrigley spearmint gum really keeps your harm and spearmint gum keeps her
0: to check out the rest of it go to youtube and type in dave's archives or you can visit them on facebook again search dave's archives and now back to my punishment for the week okay time's up what do you two want to do i am not sitting through the paul riser again
1: but the rest of the movie looks so boring.
4: I'd rather go through something boring than revisit that one brother sketch for all of eternity.
0: I need an answer, and I need it now. Maybe this will help speed things up.
2: Rush away that morning breath and sweeten
1: up those lips. Let Sparkle Bright say good morning and seal it with a kiss. Sparkle Bright, Sparkle
3: Bright,
1: kiss our if it means getting out of here, we'll stay, but I'm telling you, it's gonna be pretty quiet for the next couple minutes.
0: Works every time. So now, we rejoin Faye Gilda in Act 4 as she tries to find happiness once and for all with her new co-star. Unfortunately, there's still the matter of that whole pesky, I'm still married to somebody else problem.
2: You do like me.
0: Yes, Gilda, I
4: like
2: you. Why?
0: Are you
4: fishing? I like the way you sing. More than anyone I
3: know. I like how fragile you are. You know, you're like a firefly. You light up and then you get scared.
0: This movie has lots of problems, but I'm just gonna go ahead and say that the actor who's portraying Gene Wilder is definitely not one of them. Sure, he doesn't look exactly like him, but he's got his vocal cadences down to a science. One of those, if I close my eyes, it's like he's in the room kind of performances. Unfortunately, when I open my eyes, the guy kind of looks like Neil Breen with lighter hair.
4: Do we have to explain who Neil Breen is?
0: (sighs) That's what Google's for you, putz. Now focus. Fake Gilda tries to continue her extramarital courtship. I'll get you a cap.
2: Promise me something, that if you ever change your mind, You'll call me, or call my manager.
0: Hi, this is
4: Gene Wilder. Could you tell Gilda I'd like to have that affair now?
2: (laughs) No, no, just tell him, tell him the ducks have landed.
0: So while we're waiting for not Gene to make up his mind, fake Gilda goes on an eating binge with somebody who I'm guessing is supposed to be Lorraine Newman's doppelganger.
2: Gilda, you do know why you're in love with Gene. Other than representing my father who died when I was in puberty, I'm neurotic, not stupid. Maybe you should divorce, Ge. Maybe I should get a dog. I gotta go, you know.
3: Oh, honey, you're not still doing that?
2: Ah, uh, look at us, two modern
3: gals working through their modern problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Eating disorders are a laugh riot, don't you think so, guys? <laughs>
0: I think there may be something seriously wrong with you. But all the binging and purging is worth it, as fake Gilda gets an important message the next day.
2: Hi, Gilda, this is Lindsay. I got a very weird message today for you from Gene Wilder. The ducks have landed. That's it. He said you'd know.
0: (laughs) The ducks. The ducks. Gilda, as expected, calls it quits with G.E. Smith and begins a new relationship with bargain-basement Willy Wonka. And at the same time, she tries to improve her own physical outlook. This means no more vomiting, no more cigarettes, no more drinking, and no more traumas in her life. A perfect way to start the year 1982. That's right. March of 1982. You heard me correctly. March 5th. Of 1982.
3: Everything Blue she did was suicidal.
2: The way he ate, the way he drank, even the way he moved. He could hit me without ever hurting me, and he'd hurt me without ever hitting me.
0: While I'm sure the sentiment is meant to be there, I'm pretty sure there are better words to be said when mourning John Belushi while in the middle of somebody else's biopic. I wouldn't know. I think we'd have to watch Michael Chiklis and Wired for something like that. Regardless, this is where the story now makes a series of whiplashes in tone. Starting with a fabricated spat between the loving couple. I thought
2: we were gonna go to a movie together. We will. When?
0: Later. Which is then eased off thanks to a Yorkie. I became one of those people who took endless pictures of their dog. Which is then followed up by that same dog possibly eating poison.
2: Oh my god, where are my keys?
0: What are you doing? The town car is going to be here any minute. I've
2: got to get her to the vet!
0: Which is then followed up by fake Gilda and counterfeit Dr. Frankenstein getting married in France.
2: I love France.
0: I love you more than you know.
2: Jean and I were married in France by the town's mayor. It was just like in a fairy tale.
0: And just when you think the two of them get to live happily ever after, a reminder that this is somebody's life story and that there's still 35 minutes to go. God damn it! I say the exact same thing to myself every day when I wake up here. Life's tough, wear a helmet. Act 5 opens with not Jean getting ready to play tennis, but fake Gilda is mysteriously weary. Gilda, honey. You ready to go? Go
4: already
1: played.
2: Something's wrong.
1: No, you took a
0: nap, that's all.
2: No, I have to see a doctor. Something's wrong.
0: And let's pause again right here. I know we're in hell, and I know it's our job to make fun of less than mediocre TV. But I'm not gonna lie when I say that these next few minutes may be a bit of a minefield to walk through when it comes to the lines of good taste. However, since, according to her own written words, the real Gilda Radner spent most of this period of her life laughing her way through her own ailments, maybe it's okay if we do so in a dignified way. Don't you agree, gentlemen? Hey,
1: it's your show. I'm I'm sure you'll know what to do. Yeah, I mean, we're
0: pretty thick-skinned when it comes to sensitive subjects. Okay, then. Let's proceed. After sleeping through the day for no reason... Fake Gilda tries to find out what the reasons are from a series of doctors.
2: It's Epstein Barr. It's not life-threatening. It'll
0: probably go away on its own. Sweet Lucifer, she's got a disease named after Jeffrey Epstein and Roseanne Barr? Wow. Whoa. Jesus. Wow, that's so edgy. Oh, come on. He practically gets the boss's coffee each morning.
3: This is the legal counsel for the underworld. Just wanted to break in here to remind the listeners that Epstein-Barr is just another term for mononucleosis that was discovered many, many years ago. The fact that it happens to share the same names as two very famous piles of filth is purely a coincidence
0: and nothing more. We now return to the episode already. In progress. Ultimately, fake Gilda finds out what's really wrong with her.
2: It's ovarian.
3: Huh. Oh, Cancer. We're going to perform surgery immediately, then chemotherapy,
0: now I've already spoken Which brings us to what I would like to call the montage of pain where fake Gilda is seen getting her treatment with images of previous bad habits spliced in. All the while, one of her lesser-known SNL characters, Rhonda Weiss, sings a song about one of those possible but long-since-debunked cancer causers.
2: And I can look everywhere from our orch-
0: I feel this isn't necessarily the worst part of the movie i do find it to be the most awkward to sit through it's almost as though we're watching somebody's life flash before their eyes and they're not even dead yet
4: i guess gilda kind of had a bit of a misunderstanding about Saccharin, okay. as i guess maybe we all did right um because this is like a strange montage i guess of like all of the things that might have caused her cancer mm. Uh, also, uh, beautifully wrapped up with a montage of chemotherapy. Oh, yeah. Because, uh, you know, this, this film hasn't pulled your heartstrings hard enough. So, let's just, uh, show
0: syringes going into her. Yeah, I
1: like having fun. I'm having fun, (laughs) this is great!
0: (laughs) Of course, when one is going through a traumatic illness, that's torture enough. But when one is a famous person going through the exact same thing, it's only a matter of time until one of Hell's main sources of income, the tabloid newspapers, tries to take a piece of you, just as fake Gilda discovers while going through her treatments. It's a kind of moment that leaves one feeling introspective.
2: I read this book once. said that when she was a kid she was always afraid that she'd never find her parents at the beach everybody had an umbrella everybody looked the same so you know what her father did Hmm. he tied a pair of tennis shoes to the spokes of the umbrella so that she could see it right away (laughs) so that she would never get lost
1: did you trick us into watching a lifetime TV movie
0: (sighs) Uh, Look, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys, when I saw this the one and only time it aired on TV when I was alive, I turned off the movie after they were done with all the SNL bits. If I knew this was gonna be a standard issue woman's weepy from the first minute, I would've changed the channel to 24 on Fox a lot quicker and earned some testosterone back from a Jack Bauer action scene. Then again, it's Gilda Radner. Living or dead, she's probably one of my all-time favorite performers, and I wanted to see if they gave her story some justice. And for the most part, they did get this part of the book right. Up to and including Not Jean tying shoes to the spokes of an umbrella, blatant disregard for bad luck omens notwithstanding. So, act six begins with fake Gilda in treatment, and while she's probably hallucinating, we get to see the one remaining SNL character of hers that hasn't been covered yet. By the way, we did nothing to the audio here. This is exactly how it sounded in the movie.
2: My guest is that fine comedian in act with Gilda Webb. So, Gilda, what, what have you been you doing, doing since you, you left Saturday Night Wife? Dying, and you? All your Saturday all you Night Wife co-stars stars are huge now. Does it make you you angry angry that you have no queer? Of course it makes me angry. All I ever wanted was to be married and to have kids. I'm 40 years old and do you know what I have? Cancer. Everyone else is healthy and successful. I hate them. I hate you.
0: Okay then. Uh, Gentlemen?
3: Please lighten the mood. Talk about Baba Wawa or something.
1: Hey, Baba Wawa. Now that's fun, right? Is it? Yeah, I think (laughs) it is. You know, I always like to mangle words uh, as a source of comedy. So yeah, Baba Wawa's a lot of fun. And I mostly uh, like to get my laughs uh, bedside after somebody just got chemo. And laugh uproariously to Baba (laughs) Wawa. That's what you do. That's the best place to enjoy it.
0: Thankfully, fake Gilda is about to get a dose of hope from a new friend in her life, Joanna Bull, who, and this is no joke, would later on be instrumental in helping to establish Gilda's Club, a nationwide support group for fellow cancer patients. But before those can be established, Bull has to let Gilda know what a support group is first.
3: Without control, anything and everything is possible. You let go of control, you are free... To live and really feel in
0: control? After a series of pep talks, Fate Gilda attends one of these wellness meetings where not only does she feel more at ease with herself, but she also happens to bump into a familiar face from her past. You are at Camp Tamakwa. I was a counselor. Jeff? Cute <laughs> Jeff! Hey! It's that guy from the beginning of the movie! You know, this guy? You guys... Better hurry up if you're gonna catch lunch. Remember him? No, of course not! But I'm sure he's there anyway as some sort of passage of time metaphor, or additional dramatic licensing, or some shit like that. But supposedly, seeing her old camp counselor and attending the meeting gives fake Gilda just enough strength to get her through her initial round of treatments. As well as some other fringe benefits? I'm telling you, gene
2: cancer needs me. It's got a bad reputation. It needs me to come in there and lighten it up. (laughs) Oh my lord. Do you feel like fooling around?
0: I've already seen the fault in our stars more than enough times to give that moment a pass, so... Let's move on to our next montage. One that's more of encouragement, where Fate Gilda uses the power of humor to get through everything.
1: Life! Do you hear me? Life! Give my creation life!
0: And with her treatment complete, everything seems to be wrapping up nicely. Except for the fact that there's still 13 minutes to go, and this being a biopic, we already know what the overall outcome is going to be.
1: Then why are we still here?
3: Because you didn't want to spend an eternity watching Paul Riser trash talk
0: women's college basketball in the 90s. Point taken! The last act of the movie sees fake Gilda enjoying her supposed victory lap, up to and including periodic checkups. Fake Gilda is doing so well, in fact, that she considers doing what would turn out to be her final acting role ever, a cameo on It's Gary Shanling's Show, a show that was co-created by one of Gilda's longtime friends, former SNL writer Alan Zweibel. I got this crazy call today
1: from a woman who said she was going to drop by. I, I wonder who it could be.
2: I can't. Do this it's gonna be awful. I won't remember my lines. People are gonna hate me. It's gonna be Gilda Radner has no talent zip zip zero all over again. It'll ruin my career.
0: You have no career.
2: That's supposed to make me feel better.
0: Unfortunately, as we've been telegraphing this entire time, that appearance, as well as the notion of starting up a series of national cancer support centers, turned out to be a last hurrah of sorts, as fake Gilda gets some news that the audience has been dreading for 81 minutes. Your CA-125
3: is up. That's impossible.
2: It was normal three weeks ago.
3: We're not sure about that. Apparently the computer misread your CA-125.
0: It wasn't normal. And just when all seemed hopeless, Fake Gilda has one more dream about her late father, Colonel Sanders, possibly in a last-ditch effort to let her know that things will be okay no matter what the outcome. Which then leads to one final act of defiance in the face of certain death. I can do anything! You can radiate me! You can put poisons
2: in my body! But you cannot destroy me. You know why? You know why? Because I am Cancer Woman! Cancer Woman! Cancer Woman! I am Cancer Woman! Yes, I am! And you are chemo dog, a trusty chemo dog. And they fight cancer. Wherever there is cancer, they go, and they fight it together. And they smash it, and they bash it, and they smush it. Cancer Woman is chemo
1: dog! And they, what the hell are you doing?
2: cancer woman, and I don't have to be afraid of not knowing. I know, and I can take it. I can have cancer, and more cancer, and the cancer never goes away, but I stay. Do you want to know why? You want to know why? Because I am invincible!
1: Okay, hold it. We've been going along with you begrudgingly for pretty much all of this movie. Yes, it has its flaws, but truth be told... This looks like a regular, ordinary movie of the week. What is this really about?
4: Yeah, I agree. I mean, a lot of what we cover around here tends to be bad for various reasons. But aside from the SNL inaccuracies, what's so bad about this
0: movie? (sighs) Well, you both have come this far. So the least I owe you is the truth, which I will tell you in a... What's that thing called again, lady posing as the late Anne Beats? There are nine circles in Dante's Inferno.
3: It's hell, you Harvard freak. Who gives a damn? Yes, of course. That. Limbo. Lust. Gluttony.
0: Greed. Wrath. Heresy. Violence. Fraud. Treachery. Even though, by all accounts and purposes, the movie was just... okay, the biggest problems with the movie wasn't necessarily plot-based, but rather the fact that they couldn't scrape together a sufficient research department for half of it. Sure, you can stick William Shatner on me all you want, but when the countless books, documentaries, and other publications are made over the years, not getting certain details right, to me, still felt wrong to what was already common knowledge to SNL fans. And that's where you can ring both the fraud bell, and the heresy bell. And the fact that it happened in 50% of the movie made me so angry the first time I saw it that I changed the channel in Wrath. While we're on the subject of diseases to exploit in this movie, even though she had a documented case of it, it still felt super awkward to watch fake Gilda go through her anorexia phase, a phase that could only take place thanks to a gluttonous desire for food to say nothing of the other theme of the movie, that any man fake Gilda ever got close to, with the exception of Gene Wilder, wound up disappointing her in some way, a misguided mark for lust. Anything else to add, gentlemen?
1: Ah, oh, man, you know, it was all right. Not the most painful thing I ever had to go through, but you know, you get half and half of like, uh, some people hit their voices for their impressions, other people don't, some people looked apart, other people don't. Jamie Gertz does a respectable Gilda Radner and you know considering 90 minutes and a whole lifetime to cover uh, it, it gets there but it's not anything you're gonna need to really seek out even for a TV
4: film it's just exceptionally bad and the, the shoehorning of the, the, the narrative beyond the narration is so unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Like, why do you have a narrator and cutaways to her reading her book? It makes no sense. Well, she is the narrator. I get that. Yeah, but why have both?
1: Oh, it the scenes the, of her recording. The, yeah, the scenes right. of her actually recording the book are clown shoes. It's uh, you know, well we we had to make our runtime somehow. Yes, and we did. By God, we did. Ninety minutes. We got some commercials in there. People paying money. You know what? Good job, boys.
0: <laughs> Gilda Radner. It's always something. Earns five out of nine circles of telehell. <laughs> But now that I got the movie's thoughts out of the way, I do feel the need to add something off the record and out of character. And for that, I need to kill the flame for a second. Like I said earlier, the first time I saw this movie was when it aired the one and only time that it did back in 2002. I was just a high school senior at the time, but I was a rabid SNL fan back then, and, well, I guess I still am, even in my death. So, when I say that I only watched it up until the SNL segments wrapped up, I mean that. I didn't even give the other half of the movie a second thought. But now that I've seen the entire thing, I feel that it may be necessary to mention that while I personally have never been through cancer at any point in my lifetime or even here in the underworld, there has been a lot of cancer history in my family over the years. Aunts, uncles, grandparents, various other relatives on both sides of my family, they've had it and most of them have thankfully beaten it. But what they went through pales sharply in comparison to anything a TV movie or a TV episode about cancer could ever do. They sugarcoat it. Obviously, they have to sugarcoat it because what people really go through whenever they find out they have it is probably one of the most harrowing experiences that they will ever face. And I'm only speaking as an outsider looking in. But these kinds of shows and movies piss me off in a way that's tangentially hard to describe. Yes, they do show the negative side 99% of the time with a dash of something quirky to show that maybe things won't be that bad. And while that is positive thinking, it's not reality. The reality is a lot of pain and, if you're lucky, a slow recovery process. And not just physical pain for the person who's suffering for it, but also emotional pain from everybody else around them. So pardon me if, just for a moment, I feel that any time I see one of these manufactured dramas that exploits such a thing, whether the events in question are based on someone's actual life or not, I want to burn it with the white hot intensity of a thousand suns, because they don't know what pain and suffering truly is. Of course, that's just my thoughts on disease exploitation related media in general. Not just cancer, but just about any medical malady that the powers that be in Hollywood would probably consider great entertainment. All this stuff I just mentioned harkens back to my previous thoughts on The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, in that they take people's suffering and give it a Hollywood ending, even though the reality is far less positive for many and you cannot get any more fraudulent than false hope, which is also why I didn't ring the fraud bell for that because, as it was established, Gilda Radner ultimately passed away in 1989. The real Gilda may have touted the wonders of delicious ambiguity in her book, but there's nothing ambiguous about death. That's the ultimate finality, no matter how much of a grin you choose to face it with. Now. I'm not saying one can't be upbeat or at peace about whatever it is that ails them, but dealing with it in the real world is far more wearying. Which is why if anybody out there is going through a hard time with cancer, especially the recovery process, just know that there are places out there where you won't feel alone about it. And thankfully, that kind of place is a major part of Gilda Radner's legacy. Established in 1995 by Gene Wilder, Joanna Bull, and several other of Gilda's friends, Gilda's Club is a community organization for people with cancer, their family, and friends. Local chapters provide meeting places where those who have cancer and their family and friends can join with others to build emotional and social support as a supplement to medical care so that nobody has to face it alone. Free of charge and nonprofit. Gilda's Club chapters offer support and networking groups, lectures, workshops, and social events in a non-residential, home-like setting. Though thanks to a merger with a non-profit called the Wellness Community in 2009, the support groups are now officially called the Cancer Support Community, though some branches do choose to retain the Gilda's Club name. Having sat through this movie and seeing what all three of us had had to say about it, I want to take this opportunity to make things right. As we speak, this episode is being uploaded on Mother's Day, May 9th, 2021. As we mentioned, Gilda Radner passed away on May 20th, 1989. So, with that, what we're going to do is keep track of how many downloads this episode winds up getting for the next 11 days. May 9th through 8pm Eastern Time, May 20th of 2021. Telehell will raise, yes, you heard me correctly and I'm dead serious about this, we will raise $1 for every download or stream that this episode gets during those 11 days, up to a maximum of $300. And all those dollars and downloads will benefit the New York City chapter of Gilda's Club. If, however, you feel we may have stepped over the line a little bit in this episode, especially with all the cancer jokes, you're always free to donate to them directly at gildasclubnyc.org. And gentlemen, I hope this wasn't too painful an experience for you. Well, you know, in the end,
1: I enjoy Gilda Radner. I don't always enjoy her characters, but she has a spirit that comes through a likability. Like, of all the original cast of SNL, she's the one that is the most immediately likable. And the show grabbed onto that pretty quickly.
4: Yeah, likewise, uh, I find myself uh, a bit at odds with the general SNL-going audience. Uh, I know Gilda is uh, 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 damn near saintly Mm. in a lot of people's eyes, and and you can see why uh, so many people attach themselves to her story. Um, It's it's relatable, it's uh, tragic, Um, She's also a very affable character. I'm far from a sycophant of Gilda, but I think the more I learn about her, the more I appreciate her. Uh, Kind of like Belushi, but uh, troubled relations
0: on both ends. Mm. On that note, you're free to go. And after what we just sat through, I really don't think we need to end on a funny gag or anything, so if you just step through the exit over there, you'll return to the real world, no problem. Uh, are you sure? I I think that kind of felt like a downer ending. No, no, I, I insist. I mean, we just announced a fundraiser. Let's not kill the moment. No, really, we don't mind ending on something silly or stupid. Well, hell isn't really known for anything silly or stupid, just... Torture. Well, then use the torture to be silly. We don't mind. Well, okay. You asked for it. One torture, coming up. Oh, God. Oh, no. No, not that. Hey, you
3: wanted torture? You got it. Now run away from this song in fear. Now. No, no. Not the piece, anything but
0: the Sparkle bright, you'll never go back. To other toothpaste. Next time on Telehel, we're going to pay a visit to your subconscious.
2: Oh Bobby, I just had the weirdest dream. I dreamt I saw the strangest episode of Family Guy and there was a giant chicken
1: and Stewie was an octopus. Hey, 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 hey. Come on now. It's all right. Everything's going to be okay. What's Family Guy?
0: Until then. If it's not Hell, it's not worth a damn. Thank you is not going to be even close to enough to our special guest today, Andrew Dick and Tim Sicali of That Week in SNL. Listen to them wherever you hear fine podcasts all over the place. The part of Hell's Lawyer was played by Rob Marrer. And now, here are the rest of the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. And all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehel is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds? Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehel Podcast.